All right, yeah, once you've met someone, you can take a seat, but only when you've met someone. Again, for you germaphobes, you're like, I like this. I want to do this every week. We don't have to touch people. We can just air high five. Too bad, not every week, just maybe a week or two. Um, hey, welcome. Welcome to Exchange. So glad you guys are here. Do me a favor. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're at. Hebrews chapter 2. Again, raise your hand if you need a Bible just so you can follow along with us. Nathaniel, can, I, can you help me with this buzz? Do you, I don't know if you guys hear that. It's just me. Sweet. Thank you. Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Again, hold your hands high. We want to get you one so you can follow along. Um, as you're turning there, let me just say hi, welcome. If you're new, my name is Josiah. Uh, I just want to say what's up. I'd love to meet you after service. We're so glad you're here. Um, we are currently going through the book of Hebrews. We started two weeks ago. I'm so excited for uh, this book and how the Lord's going to use it within our church. A couple quick announcements and thoughts. Uh, just so you know, we want to formally invite everyone here out next Sunday morning at 9.30 for prayer. Um, we're going to try to do this more often. Hopefully this will become a consistent thing. Uh, but next Sunday at 9.30 a.m., if you would come, come at 9.25, but come at 9.30. We're going to gather. We're going to share a couple uh, announcements, and then we're just going to pray. Uh, we'd like to start making this a rhythm and routine on Sunday mornings for just to get together to pray. Uh, as you guys know, Good Friday, Easter, a couple outreaches that we're doing are coming up. We just want to cover them in prayer. So feel free to join us next Sunday, 9.30. Just come for prayer. We'd love for you just to walk in here and pray with us. Cool? Sound good? Uh, with that, a couple things. You know about this. We've announced this, but I want to make sure we're really clear. This Friday, everyone say this Friday. This Friday, uh, March 13th at the Four Kids Office Building uh, in Fort Lauderdale off Cypress Creek Road, we are going to have like a training for our Easter and primarily for our outreach we're doing called the Extravaganza. Uh, so we're going to have some coffee, some food. We're going to talk about this outreach. Again, I've mentioned it before. The school lets us pass flyers home. We can't have the word church on it or anything, but we get to pass out flyers to all the kids here at the school, and we can invite out really the city of Deerfield to come out here. Uh, we're going to have like an Easter outreach. So there'll be games, bounce houses, music, arts and crafts. Um, there's going to be a lot happening here on Saturday, April 4th. Um, we saw about 500, almost like 450 kids uh, come out last year. So about 1,000 people here last year. So we're, we're expecting quite a bit of people. We need a lot of help. Our goal is to get 80 volunteers for this event. We have like 32. All right, so we're almost there. Um, but if you could sign up, that would be incredible. Um, just come to the training Friday night, March 13th at the 4Kids office building. Uh, we'll put this on social media. You can read more about it, see it. Uh, but we, we need you guys. Again, we, greeting, parking lot, security. Um, you want to be with people. You don't want to be with people. We have things for introverts and extroverts, whatever. Just come. Uh, we, we need everyone. Um, so that'd be a beautiful thing. And really the whole point of this is, hey, we want to know our community, love our community, tell them about Jesus, and we want to get them to come to Good Friday and Easter. And uh, we want them to hear the gospel clearly on, on Easter Sunday. And so we're also going to do this. Normally we have service, as you know, right now, 1030. By the way, it's 1030. And then, but we're going to have two services on Easter, a 930 and 1115 a.m. And so we would love for, again, we need to double, that, double our serving capacity. So we'd love if you could serve one and sit at one. If you could sit at one and serve at one, that would be incredible on Easter. Uh, there are landing pages for this on our website, uh, for the extravaganza, for Easter. Uh, but please, we need you. This is something we're trying to get out. Cool? Sound good? Yes? Extravaganza, Easter, March 13th, training. Okay. Also, bags of candy. If you still want to bring them, that'd be awesome. Thank you. We got some candy back. Thank you, guys. We have to pack 6,000 eggs. So just thank you guys for those who brought candy and did all of that. That is absolutely incredible. All right. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. 
Um, let me catch you up to speed where we're at, why we're doing this. Um, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who are going through extreme persecution. I want to be really clear. These are people who grew up in the Jewish faith. They grew up in the culture of Judaism. Uh, and so, but they've now believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And they come to put their faith and trust in Jesus. The author is writing this book because there's a tendency, it seems, happening within the church that they're getting discouraged. Maybe some are leaving or about to leave. Persecution's happening. I've mentioned this before, but this is written around 60 AD. That means Caesar Nero was in power. This is a time of extreme persecution. Christians' lands and homes are being taken from them. They had to go underground during this time, even more so. This is a time when Christians were truly being fed to, the li- to lions in the Colosseum, lit on fire. I mean, just terrible persecution. And so the author's writing to them saying, don't get discouraged, don't give up, don't ever give up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look to Jesus, see Jesus. Do not forget the one that has called you really into something greater. Uh, it's not that, that Judaism is necessarily worse or less, but Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Actually, when you look at the temple and the sacrifice and the priest and the system, all of that was a shadow of things to come. That's what Hebrews says. All of those physical things, the things you see, the things they touched and smelt and heard, all of those things were the shadow of something to come, and that, shadow, that was the shadow of Jesus, meaning Jesus was the one they were looking forward to. And so the author, here's what he's trying to do. The whole point of Hebrews is saying, let me so magnify Jesus. Let me so declare that Jesus is superior and greater in every way that you could never go back, that you could never want to leave the faith or stray. He's trying to so magnify Jesus that your heart is just so just infatuated with Jesus. You're like, I could never go back anyways. Again, the, the law, the priests, the temple, all of it was physical. They could see it, touch it, taste it, smell it. They could be a part of it. And he's saying, now you walk by faith. You live by faith and you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus. So here's for us. I get that not a lot of us, maybe any of us, are called, in a sense, maybe you grew up in a Jewish home. But for us, we all left something to follow Jesus. We all left something behind, and there's a tendency to want to go back. And he's saying, don't go back. Keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. So that is our hope, that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus. Amen? As we go through this book, and honestly, week after week, The author's trying to make the point, Jesus is superior in every way possible. And and whether Moses, Aaron, the law, the priesthood, angels, whatever it is you want to name, Jesus is superior in every way. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. So last week, remember, we looked at how Jesus is greater or superior than the angels. And this week, we're going to see in light of that truth, how do we live? In light of the truth that Jesus is greater than the angels, he tells us this is how you should live. You need to take heed. Don't drift away. Don't neglect. And so this is actually the first of five warnings we're going to see in Hebrews. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. This is the first of five warnings. Uh, If you want to, you'll see these warnings. I'll make it really clear. They're very intense. Um, Some of you maybe have read ahead into Hebrews. You're like, I can't wait till Josiah has to explain Hebrews 6. He's going to be sweating a lot. Like there's some difficult passages in Hebrews, incredibly difficult passages. This is the first one. This is a warning. This is an exhortation. This is saying, don't drift, don't neglect your great salvation. And so I just want to read this. We're going to read this all the way through, then we'll pray. Sound good? Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Let's read this warning and read what the author's saying. He says, therefore, meaning, in light of how Jesus is superior, in light of how the angels worship Jesus, Jesus is superior. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. 
For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, quoting from Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus. I wouldn't say we see Jesus. We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death, death for everyone. Let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, um, we are humbled by the scripture, by what we read today. God, we're humbled by the truth that we see here, that Jesus tasted death, that he might taste death for everyone. God, how we want everyone to taste and see that Jesus is good how we want everyone to know you personally and intimately. And God, I just ask that, um, what it is you, you said then, Lord, say it to us now. Take your, we ask for your Holy Spirit to make this very true, that God, we would not drift, that we would not neglect this great salvation. God, we just ask for ears to truly hear from you. Lord, what is it your Holy Spirit wants to say to us this morning? We just pray that it would just produce life and, and just change in us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the truth that you have come, that you have paid for the penalty of sin, and that you rose again from the grave. And we ask, Jesus, that we would constantly live in light of that. So we ask that you just be here in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You know, growing up in Southern California, um, there was a huge emphasis and, and culture around surfing. Um, a lot of our friends and family that surfed or pretended to surf, uh, but there's a big culture around surfing. I, I was kind of the black sheep of some of my friend groups because a lot of them like to surf, and I was like the kid who played basketball. And I'm like, let's go surfing. I'm like, I don't want to go outside, and I don't like sand. Um, but there'd be times I would try to go, and I, even at times I maybe thought I was one. I remember in middle school, I had a shirt that said, only surfers know the feeling. And I wore it to school, and a girl's like, so what's the feeling? And I'm like, you, you don't even know. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know. Um, I was a surfer. I couldn't get into it. Uh, it was just hard. Like the, the, it, was, it was very intimidating. You know, when we moved here, we're like looking at the Atlantic Ocean, and it's a lake. It's just so flat. There's no waves. People are like, let's go surf. Like I hear people say that in Florida. I'm like, where? Like, what, what do you surf? It's just flat. Um, the water there is freezing. You're like, you put your foot in. You're like, I don't like the water. So it was just hard for me to get into it. Uh, my brother and sister were in something called junior lifeguards. They still do that there. Like hundreds of kids over the summer kind of do like trainings and drills. And I don't know, they have to swim around the pier and all that sound terrifying. Like there's like sea lions. and That means there's sharks. And I'm like, no, thank you. So uh, that was just, that was like a culture down there. That was really big. But we would go to the beach a lot. I would go there with my mom. My mom liked to swim. My brother and sister liked to go when I was younger. And we would go a lot. And there's something about just the ocean there at least where the current was incredibly strong, and it was very overwhelming and very intimidating. There'd be times I would try as a kid to go in, like, body surf, and you, like, try to body surf, and then it, like, you know, makes you flip around, and you're like, I, okay, I want to do that. But I'd go in the water, try to play, try to get into it, 
And I remember I'd look back after maybe 10 minutes of just being in the water, and my mom would be like a quarter mile down the beach. Like most of the times I couldn't even see her. Like you walk in for a few minutes, by the time you look back, you were so far removed from where you started. And I'd have to walk out of the water and walk to my mom, and I'd get back in the ocean, and I'd drift again, and I'd walk back out. And it was like this, I, I hated it. You can see why. But the current was very, very strong. And it's one of those things that you don't even know. You don't even know. I had no clue I was drifting. I had no clue that the current was taking me anywhere. Um, and not until I looked back and saw my point of reference. Not until I looked back and saw my starting point. And this is what the author's saying. He's saying, you're drifting. You're drifting from Jesus, the gospel, the message you first heard, and you don't even know it. Drifting, again, it implies there's subtlety to it. You're not aware of it. And he's basically saying, take heed, go back, find your reference point, find your starting point. You guys tracking with me? Here's what I want to look at today. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, this is a warning. And then he talks to us really about how man failed, how man failed the way God designed us, but how Jesus was the true Adam, the last Adam, to really redeem all things. So we're going to break up this text in this way. Um, we're going to see the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting. Then we're going to look at the dominion the first Adam lost, the dominion the first Adam lost, and then lastly we'll see the dominion the last Adam won. All right? So the danger of drifting, the, the dominion, the first Adam lost, and then the dominion, the last Adam won. Let's do this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The danger of drifting. Can we read that again? Let's read again. Verse 1. He says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every uh, transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. All right, first of all, he's like, give heed to what you've heard. The Lord has spoken it. The disciples, apostles confirmed it. Gifts affirmed it. The Holy Spirit affirmed it. He's like, give heed to what you heard. What, what did they hear? The message they heard was what we call the gospel. They heard about the good news of Jesus. God has come. God has come to save. It's for us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's saying, go back to the good news that you've heard. This idea of give heed or give the more earnest heed, you might have a different translation. Some say more careful attention. That word attention or give heed is literally this word that means obsess. He says, give heed, obsessed over what you've heard. He's telling us you and I need to truly obsess over the gospel. Obsess over the message we've received from God. Like, obsess over it. Obsess over the truth, how Jesus paid for our, our sins. How he died and rose again. Obsess over that truth. It's, it's easy for us to think that we graduate from that truth. It's easy to think, I've heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I know, I know this. I know these stories. I know the gospels. And we kind of begin to get, kind of get, maybe get arrogant in that. I've heard this before, Josiah. I think what can happen sometimes on, on Sundays or some life, we can grade sermons like, that was a pretty, that was okay. You know, that wasn't bad this week. And that might be my top 10 favorite. Like we have like different things like that. He's like, no, no, no. That's not how you're to view this. You need to obsess over the message. You don't graduate. You don't graduate from the gospel. Give heed, give careful attention, obsess over this message like you need to pay close attention to. He's basically saying, you've heard this, now put it into practice. Give heed is like, let it be ingrained into your DNA and bones so it just comes out of you naturally. Listen, I think this is such a good word for us. We live in an information age. We live in a podcast age. You can hear teaching after teaching after teaching and apply none of it and live none of it out. 
And he says, I need you to give attention to this. I need this to get deep into who you are as a person. Obsess over this truth. Why? He says this, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. Now, this is where I want to focus on, obviously. Because there's a danger in drifting. When it comes to drifting, again, no one really notices they're drifting. It's not like you really are aware of it. Not until you look back and go, how did I end up here? How did we get so far? You know, if I've, maybe you've talked to people like this, but I, I interact with a lot of people. They go, I have no idea how I got here. I had no idea is this bad in my relationship. I had no idea he or she was thinking about leaving me. I had no idea I was this greedy in my heart. I had no idea this sin was like plaguing me the way it is. How did I get here? And the truth is no one got there overnight. You guys know this. No marriage on the brink of divorce overnight. There's usually slow drifting after drift, after drift, fading away. You know, no one ever expects to wake up one day and just be addicted to pornography. No one ever expects to just one day to wake up and just be in addiction to anything. And what happens is it's slowly over time, over time you compromise, you compromise, and then you look back and you go, how did I get here? And he says, obsess over the word lest you drift away. He's like, don't, don't lose your reference point. Don't lose your starting point. Don't, don't, don't think that for a second this could not apply to you. Like anyone and everyone can over time just daily through lack of discipline, through lack of, we talked about spiritual formation this fall, and giving ourselves over to these daily disciplines. Once you begin to kind of put it off and say, but I've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, I'm good. He's like, that's when you begin to drift. That's how it comes in. And then you look back and say, how did I get here? Again, it doesn't happen overnight. It's something we have to be really aware of. You know, a book I've referenced before, you've heard of it possibly, but it's a book called Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is written by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's really about this older demon uh, writing to a younger demon, and he's kind of counseling him, and he's kind of giving him guidance on how to get the person he's, try, uh, the human he's trying to get to sin. And so he's like, hey, younger demon, try this out. Don't do this. They're, you know, they're, they're aware of what you're doing when you try big things. And there's a really interesting dialogue uh, between this elder demon with the younger demon. And here's what he says. We'll throw the, the quote up to you. He says, you will say, because he gave him some advice on how to basically lure a Christian into temptation through small things. He says, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And he writes, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. <laughs> Screwtape was writing to Wormwood saying, Listen, I know that you want to get your human, your Christian to sin. I know that you're, and he like suggests murder and the, all these big things. He goes, but no, 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 no. They'll see that. Start with the small things. The, the slope, the gradual slope to hell, it's, just, it's a slow process. See, drifting, again, can happen, I really do believe, to anyone. I believe if we lose sight, if we lose sight of who we're made for, what we're made for, this applies to all of us. So the author's saying, I'm begging you, in light of this, obsess over what you heard, lest you drift away. So let's just talk through this really quick. What are some signs right now that you're drifting? Like if you look at your life and you go, God, maybe I have been drifting from you. Maybe at one point in time, there was a greater love, a greater intimacy, a greater excitement for you. And now when I wake up, I have no, I have no desire to read. I have no desire to pray. I have no desire to go to church. And it was cold today and spring forward, come on. And, you know, maybe, I don't know what that is like, but uh, 
I, trust me, it's hard for me today. But there's like maybe that side of it where you go, this is hard. This is difficult. So what are some signs that you're drifting? Here's a couple thoughts I just put down. Here's the idea. Um, I, I see in scripture, you, see, you seem and I seem to be drifting when our heart no longer trembles at sin. And I really want you to hear this. There's something about when you first give your life to Jesus, you're like, okay, Jesus, I'm all in. And it's so easy to pick up maybe on big things. Eventually the Lord convicts you of small things. It's even motives, it's even good works the Lord convicts you of as you kind of just grow in your faith. The Lord's not just convicting you of these big sins, but of like even your motives behind the good works you do. But what happens, I think, is over time, you can get callous, you can get confident, and you kind of go, I'm good. I've dealt with those things. That was years ago. When a sin sneaks back up, you go, well, I'm mature. I'm an adult. I'm not 18 anymore. I can handle this. And you, what happens is you no longer sense sin coming and tremble at it in a sense that you go, I'm going to run from this. Like it's Joseph who's literally being tempted with Potiphar's wife. And she's like, sleep with me, sleep with me. And he just sprints out of there naked because he grabbed his clothes off him. Like there's something about that when you're young in your faith, and you're like, yes, I will run from sin. But then as you grow, you can go, well, I'm, I'm mature. I can handle this. You know, I can, put, I can have this in my lap and not be burned. And there's something that can happen where you get confident in yourself. Here's a saying. The early church, I thought this was really interesting. The early church had a couple of sayings. And here's one in 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 19. There was a saying that went around the early church, and here was the saying. The saying was, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from sin. It's, if you go back and read the context, there are some sayings. The church would say, hey, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who, who's truly following him. The Lord knows those who belong to him. That was one of the sayings. The Lord knows who are his. I think of Romans 8, 16, where it talks about how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. That hopefully, as you follow Jesus that you've had that, con- where just the Holy Spirit says, hey, you're God's. You belong to God. You're his. The Lord knows who are his. But then there's a second saying that really went hand in hand. It's like, let everyone who named the name of Christ depart from sin. Not only does the Lord know who are his, but those who are his depart from sin. They depart from, like, they run from it. There's a sense of, this could do damage to me, my marriage, my family, just my spiritual life with Jesus alone. And you know you're drifting when you kind of begin to invite sin back in and you go, it's not a big deal, whatever. I can watch this show. Who cares if it has just some pornographic images? It's not a big deal. And the Lord just saying, you can't handle that. So whoever names the name of Christ, he says, depart from sin. Listen, you might be drifting right now if you're kind of like whatever when it comes to sin. If you're like, it's not a big deal. Also, here's, I think, a very truthful statement. Um, Here's a sign that you are drifting is your love for Jesus has just grown cold. You know, we can see this in life and in relationships. We can see this in different capacities. Uh, you know, there's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think sometimes just familiarity bre- breeds like laziness or apathy. But this is what happens so often. It's like, you again, you're excited about Jesus, you're excited about the gospel, what God has saved you from, what God has saved you to. And then over time, it's just like, okay, whatever. And you just kind of lose that love. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we all need to have like this overly emotional, like when I say the name Jesus, you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, you know, I'm not just saying like we have to like fake it or force it. But what I am saying is, man, what about our first love? Remember Jesus spoke to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2? Jesus was like, hey, the first church he spoke to, Jesus spoke to seven churches and to the church of Ephesus, a church that was known for their good works, that was known for their deeds. He goes, you're doing so many things well, but I have this against you, Revelation 2, 4. I have this against you that you have left your first love. The issue he had was you've, you've left your love. Think about that. The book of Ephesians was written to the church of Ephesus years later, maybe 30 years later. Jesus speaking to that same church and saying, you've left your love. You've left it. You're known for your works. You're known for doing good things. But where's your intimacy with Jesus? Where's the enjoyment of Jesus? Do you enjoy Jesus? Church, do you enjoy Jesus? 
Do, do you look forward to hearing from him, spending time with him, silent, solid, all those things we've talked about? Do you enjoy your intimacy with the Lord? He's saying, here's a sign that you might be drifting. And really, he's saying, you're not taking heed to what you've known. You're not taking heed to what you've heard. So here's my question. Um, how do we stop drifting? Like, honestly, how do we stop this? If we're drifting, how do we eventually go, this is too much. Um, this is kind of the whole point of Hebrews, by the way. So here's my thought. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. I mean, again, week after week, this is the author's point. He's like, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Over and over again, verse 9 says what? But we see Jesus. He constantly is pointing our eyes to Jesus, saying, you've lost your point of reference. You want to stop drifting? Look to Jesus. This is how you and I can stop. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How are you at with Jesus? Moving on to a similar mindset. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he says, God has spoken truth. And here's what it says in verse 19. Hebrews 6, 19. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Listen to this, like, look at this verse. Um, he's saying, we know, he said, there's a couple things about God that just don't change. What God says is going to happen. What God says is going to be accomplished. And he goes, and we have this hope, this hope of God's word as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. He goes, listen, you're drifting and you need an anchor. You know, when you're at sea and you're drifting and you go, you want to stop drifting, you need to anchor down. And what is the anchor? It is God's word is going to happen. God's word is faithful and true. What he has said will be accomplished. And we need to take hope in that. And we need to anchor our life in that and anchor our life in who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, you're drifting because you're not taking anchor. You're not anchoring your life in this hope, in this truth. Um, it is interesting to me. I've mentioned this before, but uh, in the catacombs in Rome, so Christians had to go underground eventually. There's extreme persecution. They actually were around like tombs. They would have church service amongst tombs. Uh, and Christians were known for actually drawing symbols on these tombs. We had the, the privilege one time of going to Rome and going to see the catacombs. And you can literally see, it's about like, I think it's miles and miles and miles of underground. Just, it's crazy. You have to go through the tour guide because you get lost underground. It's terrifying. Just tombs everywhere. And there's different symbols on these tombs. And obviously the cross is a symbol. I mentioned when we went through Jonah, a fish was a symbol speaking of resurrection. Boats were symbols. The ichthus, that fish, like those are symbols. But what you see is, is the anchor, which I'm not sure, I'm guessing it's up. Um, the anchor was a symbol that was really stamped or engraved on tombs. And they would see the anchor, and the top of it would be a cross, and the bottom would be an anchor, in reference to this truth in Hebrews 6. Seeing Christ and the hope of him and his word that anchors us, that we're not going to drift. We have an immovable Savior, and we have an immovable faith. And he says, this is what holds us down. This is our anchor. This is what keeps us grounded. Here's what I'm trying to say. There's signs that you might be drifting in your faith. And how do we stop drifting? He says, you need to cling to God's word, obsess over God's word. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says this phrase, exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you develop an evil heart of unbelief. So he's saying, you want to not drift? Encourage each other, speak into each other, love on each other, speak life over each other daily, lest anyone develop just a bitter heart, a heart of unbelief, a heart that doesn't take God at his word anymore. He goes, speak, exhort one another daily. Church, this is, my, this is my hope. I don't think this is like just some lost message that's old for these Hebrews. I think this is for us today. I think when I look around this room, I know it's easy for us to drift. I, need, I know it's easy for us to grow cold in our love for Jesus, and we need to take anchor and hope. We need to exhort one another. We need to obsess over the word of God. Would you agree, church?
Like this is something we, we, the exchange, this community following Jesus, we need to take hope in this and anchor in this and say, we're going to exhort one another. Let's anyone get bitter and want to drift and walk away. He's saying, encourage each other daily. You know, um, there's a guy, I think his name was Robert Robinson, yeah? Uh, he wrote a hymn that we've sung that you might know. If you don't know this hymn, it's okay, but it's called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's like a very famous hymn, right? Come Thou Fount of, I'm not going to do it. Um, but he wrote this hymn, beautiful the story goes about his, no, I'm not going to say it. The story goes about his, his life is that he wrote this beautiful hymn to the Lord and eventually he walked away from the Lord. And eventually his life kind of grew cold to the Lord. And this is in someone's uh, biography or aut- biography, autobiography on him, or biography on him. And they, their story goes like this, that he was walking away from the Lord. He sees a girl reading a book one day. He's trying to make small talk with her. And he says, hey, what are you reading? And in the book was his hymn. And she goes, I'm reading a beautiful hymn right now not knowing it's him. Like, this is an Instagram generation, right? Like, she doesn't know it's him. She, that picture is not very helpful. She doesn't know who wrote it. Um, so she goes, I'm reading this beautiful hymn. And then finally he goes, I hate to admit this. But he's like, but I, I actually wrote that hymn, but I don't, I don't live it. I don't believe it. Like, this is not something I just, I'm just not walking with it right now. And supposedly she said this back to him. She said, um, she told him, but these streams of mercy are still flowing. And that's what he wrote down. That's what rocked him. Because in his hymn, he writes that. And he's like, oh, the streams of mercy are still flowing. And the way the story goes is that eventually that statement, this interaction with this girl, just God used that to bring him to this place of repentance. He realized I'm drifting away. Exhort one another daily while it's still called today. Lest anyone develop an evil heart of unbelief. He said we need to speak this into each other. See, there are some signs that are, let's just keep moving because it's not even about drifting, it's about even neglecting. What does it say in verse two? Keep reading with me. Hebrews chapter one, verse two. It says, if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. All right, what, what Paul's doing is called like the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look at the lesser and this is the greater. So the lesser he's saying is the law. He's saying angels, remember last week we talked about how angels helped deliver the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 33, Galatians 3, Acts 7 says that. Maybe you're like, I didn't know that. But the angels helped deliver the commandments to Moses. And so he goes, look it, if the angels delivered the law, the Torah, the, something we, held up, we, we hold up so high, he goes, but we have something even greater. If we can't escape the judgment of the law, how shall we escape a greater salvation? He's like going from the lesser to the greater, saying what we have under Jesus is better. We don't have words written on stone. We have the word became flesh dwelling among us. We have something so much greater than the law that was written. We have Jesus. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Like, I don't know if you've circled that, but I'm like, oh, so great a salvation. He's saying what we have in Christ, what we have in this new covenant is so great. What makes it greater? There's so many things we could talk about. What we're saved out of, what we're saved into. How we, again, have a new covenant not written on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31 says. This makes it a great salvation. We'll put up the phrases because verse 3 and 4, he says this, It was spoken of by the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God himself bore witness with signs and wonders and miracles. There was gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is so much better. So great. So great a salvation. I I want you to hear this. We have a a great, and what Hebrews even says over and over again, we, we have a better salvation. We all have access to God the Father because of the Son, through the Holy Spirit, that you, can, and you and I can receive the, per, the gifts of the Spirit, that we have a great salvation. He goes, so how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This word neglect is one of those things where like it stopped me. When you read this, it, just, it stops us. 
he goes, you won't escape if you neglect this great salvation. So this word neglects, you know, if you look at it and you go, where, where is this? Where else do we see this? There's actually another reference to this word in Matthew 22. So in Matthew 22, this word neglect, Jesus uses in a parable he gives about how a, a, a king invited guests to his kingdom, to his wedding party for his son, a wedding feast for his son, and they did not accept. So I'll read the verses really quick. Just listen to this. It's this so interesting. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 2. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But here's what the guests did when they were invited. They made light of it. They made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his own business. That phrase, made light of it, is the same word we get the word neglect. I can't say it in Greek. I'm not going to try. It's like, Emilus, let's just. Anyways, it's this word that basically says they made light of it. They neglected it. They, they, it wasn't a big deal to them. God says, come to this party. Come to this feast. You're all invited. And they said, it's not a big deal. See, th- we have a great salvation that's offered, that's paid for by Jesus. It's a gift of God that was given to us, and we can have the tendency to make light of it. He's like, do not make light of it. Do not neglect this. Are you neglecting this? What does that look like in our life? Listen, um, you, if you choose to ignore it, you've made a choice. It's still a choice to ignore. It's funny. So if you can neglect salvation and you go, oh, it's not a big, I'm not really for it. I'm not really against it, whatever. He's like, you, you've made your choice. You know, think about this in this way. Um, you might get a bill in the mail. We still get ba- bills for our baby's uh, birth, which is like a year ago. I'm like, can it just stop? Um, here's what happens. If you keep getting bills in the mail and neglecting them, they don't just magically go away. Somebody's like, they don't? No, they don't. I'm learning that. Um, they don't just magically go away. If you neglect them, what they happen is they can grow. Maybe you've seen like a credit card statement and like you forgot to pay something and you're like, wait, what's this fee? It's like $80 million. Why do I have this? Like, there's, the fees are crazy. Um, you neglect something, it can diminish. It's not going to work properly. Here, here's the thing. Think about what we can ne- neglect. You in life can neglect a lot of important things or unimportant. You can neglect your lawn. You can neglect your teeth. <laughs> That's not very good. But you can also neglect your family. You can neglect your salvation. You know, it might not be the biggest deal in the world to neglect your lawn, and I need to stop neglecting my lawn. It might not be the biggest deal in the world, but to neglect your family, to neglect your salvation, the consequences and ramifications of that, I don't think any of us can handle. He's like, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Don't drift. Don't neglect. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Be obsessed with the message you heard when you first believed. Be obsessed over it. Give earnest heed to it. Pay close attention to it. Go back to it time and time again. Exhort one another daily. What is still called today? Church, we cannot ignore the good news. of. We cannot get comfortable with it. We cannot get complacent with it. We cannot drift with it. Amen? This is too important. Husbands, wives, you neglect your husband, you neglect your wife, you neglect your family. The ramifications of that are deadly. You neglect your Savior, you neglect your salvation. How much more, he says. He's saying the lesser to the greater. How much more? So listen, there's a danger in drifting, but he tells a solution. See Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Give heed. Now, I want to, here's what's interesting to me, because I want to make sure you can follow the author's, like, writing style. He talked about the angels, how Jesus is greater. 
We're going to read next how Jesus also, even though he's superior, he had to be made lower than the angels. He had to become man because an angel cannot die, as we talked about last week, but men can die, and Jesus needed to die to pay for our sins. So he's talking about the superiority of Jesus, and now he's also talking about kind of how, not the inferiority, but how Jesus took on the lesser, how Jesus had to become a man. And he actually goes back to Psalm 8, which goes back to Genesis 1, to talk about God's original design for man. So we're going to look at number two. Number two is this truth. The dominion that the, the first Adam uh, lost. The dominion the first Adam lost. Read verse five with me. So he talks about how this is the greater salvation. Verse five, he says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man? that you, God, are mindful of him, or the son of man, it's an important phrase, that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not see all things put under him. We'll we'll explain that, don't worry. Uh, Here's the idea. God made man, and God made man in a way to rule and have dominion over everything he created. The author of Hebrews and of Hebrews is going back to Psalm 8, which David wrote. David wrote as worship, God, 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 what, what is man that you're mindful of him? It's like, who am I? It's a great verse to study, like anthropology, the study of man, how God made man. God, you made us to rule. You crowned us with glory and honor. You made us lower than the angels. God, but we have also been made in your image. We're image bearers of you. Genesis 1.26 is key. This is, it seems as if David's reflecting in Psalm 8 on Genesis 1. I want, I want to make sure I tie this in. You guys get this. Here's a verse. Genesis 1.26. Listen. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Let us make man in our image. God is speaking. The Trinity is speaking. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion. Say dominion. That was bad. Say dominion. <laughs> Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God, when he originally made man, says, I want you to rule. I want you to rule my creation. I want you to have dominion over it. David's reflecting on this. What is man that you're mindful of him? You made us lower than the angels, but you've made us in your image and you've crowned us with glory and with honor. We were made to rule and to reign. And here's the great irony of Genesis 1 and of Psalm 8. And I want you to see this big picture. The irony is this. Man eventually says, I want to rule and reign. I don't need God. Satan said, the day you eat this, God's lying to you. He knows if you eat this, you'll be like him. So man goes, yeah, I want to rule and reign. So in the pursuit to rule and reign, we lost the ability to rule and reign. In the pursuit to rule and reign and be like God, we lost the dominion the way it was intended. Man does not rule the earth the way we see described here. Uh, we see the world at chaos. We, whether, I'm, I'm just saying talking about the world itself. Not even just people. I'm saying the world. I mean, sin affected everything. Sin did not just affect man, which it did. It affected mankind, absolutely. But Romans 8 says fit, sin affected creation. Whether you go, man, there's just tornadoes that are happening, and there's hurricanes, and there's this and that. You go, yeah, the earth is out of chaos. Man in the animal kingdom, it's, like this, it's, cha- it's chaos. We're not ruling and reigning the way God intended. The idea is, in our pursuit to be like God and to rule and reign, we actually lost the ability to rule and to reign. There's this great irony in the pursuit of something. We couldn't just enjoy what God gave us. We couldn't enjoy the rule and reign that God gave us over creation. And so, we, in a sense, we blew it. This first Adam gave up that dominion. The first Adam blew it. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says it this way. It says, For by one man sin entered into the world. By one man just sin came into everything. And he broke it. 
He broke the way God designed us. We made us he made us in his image, and that's even, that's even been marred. That's even been broken. So here's why I'm bringing this up, and here's what the author's saying. He's saying, look at man. Man was to rule and reign and have dominion. He put all things under him, but not all things are truly under him. But here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. It's really cool. He's now reading Psalm 8 through saying, I'm going to read Psalm 8 through this messianic lens. I'm going to read Psalm 8 through the lens that this applied to Jesus. And I want you to see that in that way. And we'll, we'll explain in a second. So let's go to number three. Number three is the dominion, the last Adam one. So verse eight, let's read verse eight again. What does he say in verse eight? For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Referring back to Psalm 8. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor the way it's supposed to be. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. We see the last Adam really regain dominion and rule and reign the way he's supposed to, but he had to also become lower than the angel. He also had to become a man to die. The first Adam gave it all up. The last Adam redeemed it. Again, Romans 5, verse 15, it says, For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. If by one man's sin came into the world, well, by one man, redemption came into the world, and that is Jesus, the last Adam. Jesus ruled and reigned the way that we, the way that Adam was intended to rule and reign. So honestly, think about this. When Jesus comes on the scene, and I want you to think about this, he actually had dominion over the earth the way you're supposed to. There's storm and there's chaos. That was never intended. He speaks and the storm's silent. He, he's the one who says, hey, Peter, we need to pay our taxes. Go to the ocean and go fishing, and this fish will have a coin. Like, Jesus just has crazy dominion over whether it's the earth, the land, over animals. It's that donkey that's never been ridden before, and it's calm with Jesus. It's Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side. They catch 153 fish. My point is, the way that man was intended to rule and reign over the earth, Jesus came on the scene and ruled and reigned over the earth. Jesus was the last Adam. Jesus was the Adam that we needed. He was the one who brought everything back under dominion. And he says this, and it's interesting now, if you read Psalm 8 through that lens, how he was made lower than the angels, how he was crowned with glory and honor, how? Because of death. The last Adam brought in death, Jesus had to take on humanity so he could die. The last Adam brought in death, Jesus had to die so he could bring life. And he's going, what Adam lost, Jesus gained. But we see Jesus, he says, but we see Jesus. I had to like circle that. I like focus on that. Do you see that phrase in verse nine? But we see Jesus. And I love this thought in verse eight. He goes, all things are put under him, but not all things are lived out or carried out that way put under him. So the idea is um, the kingdom of God, many people call it this way, the already and not yet, the already and not yet, the already and not yet. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. It's already, it's here, but we don't see all things under him. It's, it's under him. Jesus purchased it and he paid for it and the earth and everything in it is his, but he hasn't necessarily come back to physically and visually rule and reign over it. It's under him, but not under him. It's already, but not here. And verse 9 is like, we, we, see, we look in faith to Jesus, the one who purchased it, the one who was the final Adam, the one who lived it out this way. Um, I love what Spurgeon said about this idea of seeing Jesus, because what does that mean? They, never, they didn't see Jesus. These are second-generation believers. The people he's writing to are most likely not people that actually saw the resurrection Jesus like the apostles did. But here's what he's saying, but we see him. How do we see him? Here's what Spurgeon says. Listen to this. He says, sight is very frequently used in scripture as a metaphor, an illustration, a symbol to set forth what faith is. Faith is the eye of the soul. It is the act of looking unto Jesus. Faith is the eye of the soul. We look to Jesus. We, by faith, 
Look to Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he did, what he claimed, the teachings of Jesus, how to live life, living under the kingdom of God. Matthew 5 through 7, the servant on the mount. Here's one way to live, but I tell you another way to live. That is, we look to Jesus. He says, but we see Jesus. The last Adam gave it all up, or the first Adam gave it all up, but the last Adam redeemed it all. We see Jesus who tasted death, that he might taste death for everyone that he might redeem mankind through embracing the curse. Adam brought on a curse. The curse was death. Jesus took on the curse of death so that we might live. Through Adam all die, and Christ all are made alive. Through Adam comes sin and hell and death and suffering, but through the last Adam came resurrection, new life, us in the presence of God. What Adam lost, the last Adam gained. What Adam gave up, dominion of the world, the last Adam, the last Adam who's Jesus, regained that for you and I. He, that he might taste death for everyone, for everyone. Listen to this last verse. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Listen. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Here is the gospel. In Adam all die, yes. Why is there death? Why does it seem unnatural? Why does it feel like this is not okay? Like this is not okay when you see death happen up close. You go, this is not meant to be. This is not okay. This is not the way God intended. Absolutely, it's not. God created the world good. God creates to go ongoing. But God warned us that the day you eat of this, you will surely die. It's literally said in Hebrew, the day you eat this, you're going to die, die. You're going to die physically and you're going to die eternally. And that happened. The day we ate of it, we died. Man, death came into the world. Sin came into the world. But the last Adam came to take on death, to take on the curse, so you might reverse the curse. So you might say, I will die so you can live. I will be the last Adam. I'll be the one that God intended man to be all along. God intended man to live this way, to carry out it this way. I'll be that. And if I taste death for everyone, it's so you can live. Jesus said that. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The fact that Jesus tasted death so we could live? This phrase, I just said, like, when you think about Hebrews 2, 9 and meditate on it, you go, that he might taste death for everyone. God's will is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's will is that everyone would know him, believe in him. You see, this is why we come together and we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is why we take communion. This is why we say, Jesus, thank you that you tasted death for me. Jesus, and as I take and eat, as I taste, I remember and I celebrate the fact that your death was enough, that you took on the curse of Adam, that you were the last Adam. I remember the fact that you died so I can live. I remember the fact that you also rose again three days later, that by your stripes, by your blood that was shed, I am healed, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, I'm made new. See, Jesus tasted death for everyone, that he might taste death for everyone so you and I could live. Listen, we are going to take communion today. What an pr appropriate time for us to slow down and say, listen, Jesus tasted death for us so we could live. Because we take and eat just to remember the fact that Jesus took on the curse for us. Jesus was the man, was the Adam that God intended it to be. He ruled and reigned the ways intended, and he will also come and rule and reign. He'll also come again and rule and reign the way God intended. What Adam lost in the garden, Jesus regained at the cross. God, be, God created man in paradise in a garden. And when you read Revelation, how does the story end? We're in paradise in a garden. We go back to a garden, back to intimacy, back to just trees and fruit, back to really just internal enjoyment with God, with our maker. And Jesus says, I'll be the last Adam that will bring that. I'll reverse the curse. I'll take on the curse. I'll die so you can live. Listen, here's what I want to do. I just want to slow down a little bit as we even did it in the beginning of worship. We're just going to take and eat and taste and remember the fact that Jesus paid for our sins. Listen, I just want to encourage you guys with something. Slow down. Don't worry about what's happening around you. 
as you get that little cracker, as you get that little juice, it's just for us a reminder, a reminder of Jesus' death, his resurrection, that because his blood was shed, my sins are forgiven. Jesus tasted death for everyone so we might live. I want you guys, listen, if you believe in Jesus, take, eat, remember, celebrate. There's no, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you're here as a guest, and I don't know if I believe this, there's no need to take communion. No need to celebrate, remember something you don't believe in. Please don't take it. But I would say this, if you say, I want to believe, and I want to take it, and I want to remember, and I want to celebrate, because I do believe this, and I do want to give myself to this, and take, eat, enjoy. Taste and see the Lord is good. <laughs> we see Jesus by faith. Let us do that now. Can we just, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. Worship team is going to come up. As they're playing worship, you're going to receive the elements. When you are ready, pray over it. Thank God for it. Take, eat, and drink. We're going to have you do it at your seat. Then we'll come back up here and pray and close at our time. But I just want you to get alone, to enjoy your Savior, to enjoy what he's done for you, and to celebrate the fact that Jesus reversed the curse, that he tasted death for everyone so we might live. Amen? Let's worship. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this truth, Jesus that God, um, you sent Jesus who was that last Adam and Adam all died, but in Christ all are made alive. That God's sin came into the world through one man, but through another man, through Jesus came redemption, came life. God, I just ask that we would not drift from this, that we'd take the warning serious, that we would not neglect this great salvation. That Jesus, anyone in here who's been drifting or neglecting, that God, today they would repent, they would return to their first love, that they'd remember the gospel, they'd cling to it, obsess over it, take heed to it, that Jesus, we'd exhort, speak into each other, encourage one another daily. Uh, God, that we would just be reminded of the truth, Jesus, that you are our first love. We love you. We thank you. We ask you to be so present now as we even just celebrate and remember communion in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Listen, they're going to pass out communion. When you're ready, take, eat, and drink, and let's just worship as well.